Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Kroll Bennett. Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. We've already done an episode on early bloomers, the kids who enter puberty first and the science behind that, as well as hosted Andrew Goldberg, co-creator of Big Mouth and world famous early bloomer. Today's episode is about the science and the social emotional impact of being a late bloomer. We've had my brother, Nick Kroll, and my husband, Roger Bennett, guess there's a theme there, sharing their stories about being late bloomers and how it impacted their lives. But today is really more about the information, the science, the data, the research that allows us to categorize someone as a late bloomer. And while we had some male late bloomers, Cara, my wonderful co-host, can talk to you a little bit about what it felt like to be a late blooming female, which we have not yet discussed. Oh, Cara, yeah. I haven't I haven't gotten your permission for that yet. So let's see. <laughs> I have lots of first person experience to share. Don't you like how I just like assumed that you were gonna, you know, dive right in there? Thank you for rolling with that. You know, everyone in your life is either an early bloomer or a late bloomer. You don't do things down the middle, do you, Vanessa? I, I mean, apparently not. I was down the middle. It's the only thing I've ever been down the middle on is like when I got my period. Other than well, that, right I'm, on time, Vanessa. <laughs> right. Actually, I am a very prompt and timely person. I will you say are. that, you as are. is my period. Um, so, Cara, let's start with the science. How do we actually determine that someone is a late bloomer? Right. And what is late since all we talk about on this podcast is how much earlier everything is happening. So has late changed? Right. right? Or That's how there isn't, too. how there is no normal. Like we're talking about there's no normal. It happens to different people at different times. And yet we are categorizing early, normal, and late. So right. there is no normal, but there's early and late. There's no on time, but there's early and late. This is very complicated. So Right. The framework we're going to use for this conversation is the framework everyone uses in life, which is relative to other people around me. What is first? What is last? What is somewhere in between? That's what we mean by early and late. And there are, there are absolute definitions of early and late. And we should do that right now. We should define those terms for people to understand what the absolute definitions are, but there's also the experiential definition, meaning if 100% of my friends 
have gone into puberty visibly by the time they're, you know, 11 or 12 and I'm 12 and I haven't, it feels late to me. So that's right. A so there's this kind. subjective experience Correct. and then there's the research and the data. And can you explain a little bit? And Louise Greenspan talked about this on the episode about the new puberty, but can you explain like how scientists determine the range? What's involved in that? Well, let's first define the terms and Great. then we'll define the range. Great. So Louise Greenspan gave us a really great definition of early puberty. What she said was that it depends upon your genetics and it depends upon your ethnicity in terms of what is called early. So for a genetic female, anyone who is younger than seven who has signs of puberty is too early. But in some ethnicities, really it's younger than eight, but for sure it's younger than seven for genetic females. If, if you've got a six-year-old female who's showing externalizing outside visible signs of puberty, then you want to have a doctor evaluate that kid. For genetic males, it's a little bit older. We don't expect genetic males to enter puberty until nine or 10. So the cutoff is usually eight. Again, you know, big asterisk for your ethnicity and some of the genetics that are contributing. That's early. Late gets confusing. For mm. boys, it's actually not confusing. For boys, there is a clear delineation at age 14. If there are zero signs of puberty by the age of 14. And by zero genetic, signs of puberty, you mean? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to get into that in a second okay. because zero signs of puberty on physical exam by a doctor. Okay. Or a healthcare provider, I should say. If there are zero signs of puberty by age 14, that child is considered a late bloomer if, if he is genetically male. For females, it's generally a little younger, although there isn't as firm a line. I would say certainly if females have reached the age of 14 and there's absolutely no development, for sure that that female is a late bloomer, but some people would start questioning what's going on at 13. Some doctors might at 12 and a half wonder why is there absolutely no development at all? So the line is very firm for males. The line is less firm for females when it comes to late blooming. And what I mean by nothing going on at all is that when someone examines the testicles and the penis, there is no testicular growth and there is no penile growth. And if you're wondering how you figure out if there's testicular growth, there is this awesome, it's actually doubles as a necklace. You can wear this little tool as a necklace. It's called an orchidometer. We've talked about it before. And it's a series of beads that ranges from the smallest bead being the prepubescent testicle size and the largest bead being sort of the larger end of the adult male testicle size. And it's, remember, testicles are measured in volumes and so um, actually these beads have, many of them have notation on them that says how many milliliters of fluid they might hold, which just really wigs some people out. But um, yeah, a, a healthcare professional may use an orchidometer to measure the testicle size of a patient against the testicle sizes in these beads. 
to determine whether the testicles are prepubescent or whether they have started to grow and develop themselves because the testicles are the testosterone making factories. They have to grow in order to get testosterone on board. So that is what I mean by a late blooming male, zero testicular growth, zero penile growth by age 14. And two, two points of clarification for me and for our listeners. One is the testicles is the sac inside the scrotum, right? So they're not measuring the... So the- the testicles yeah. are the balls. They are the literal round literal balls, balls right. inside the scrotum, which is the sac. Right. So that's there's a differentiation there. Secondly, is there a minimum size, right? Because I assume for testicles, I assume there's a range of sizes like in basically every other part of the human body. So is there a minimum size for like a fully grown biological male that his testicles could be? Yeah. That's why I say the orchidometer goes up to the biggest male testicular size because there are, there's a range of everything in this world and the average baby testicle also has a range, right? Mm. Some are smaller and some, so prepubescent testicles also have a range So this, you know, the necklace isn't perfect. It's not like 500 beads long. It's Mm -hmm. just about 12 beads and you kind of know where you are along the path if you're looking at an average volume, right? If you're wondering, I, if you're wondering what to get me for Hanukkah, by the way, that's what I want. I want an orchidometer. Yeah, but those orchidometers may be sitting on a boat in, outside the port of LA, just waiting to come on to land. I'm thinking it's a high, um, high demand item. Just waiting to, to measure themselves against <laughs> against testicles all over the United States of America. I asked my son yesterday what he wanted for the holidays. He did not say orchidometer, which I'm surprised by. <sighs> we got to have um, a chat. We gotta yes, have, exactly. We got to have a chat. So, and just to, to make sure we've hammered the last nail in the definition of terms thing, late blooming females, we know that most female signs of puberty are externalizing, meaning you will see when a genetic female goes into puberty because the one of the very first physical changes is breast budding and breast growth. That's thank you, estrogen. So that is easier for a lot of people to see, but still a healthcare provider can and should examine a young girl, especially some young girls uh, carry extra body weight and it can be hard to see breast development. And some young girls wear very baggy clothes and they have no interest in anyone in their household knowing what's going on with their body. And so this is not to say that females don't need to go to a healthcare provider if a parent is concerned. You can always see a healthcare provider if you're wondering if your child's in puberty. Here's what you should not do. Do not call a subspecialist, an endocrinologist like Louise, do not call a subspecialist before you have seen a generalist. You don't want to define your child as a late bloomer without someone examining your kid and oftentimes drawing labs and looking at what's going on chemically inside the body because the hormone levels may be rising and maybe the testicles aren't growing yet or maybe the breasts haven't budded yet, but they're about to and you can see it on the lab work. And so you just don't want to go down a rabbit hole of subspecialization if you don't need to, that's not fair to your kid. And that it causes a lot of stress, unnecessary stress. So you use an endocrinologist when you need to. 
And also your pediatrician has known your kid their whole life. And so has been tracking them or nurse practitioner, whoever is your kid's healthcare provider has been tracking their growth and development over many years. And they have the context of the larger story. Whereas if you're just going to an endocrinologist, pediatric endocrinologist for the first time, they may not know the full story. They may not know the siblings. They may not know your own genetic background. Although that brings up a really good point about late bloomers, which is that the genetics of late blooming are strong. So the vast majority of kids who are late bloomers have parents who were late bloomers and that you don't need to have both biologic parents be late bloomers. Um, It's enough just to have one. And so if you're with a healthcare provider who you don't have a long history with or who's never asked about your own blooming status, if you're bringing a child in for an exam and you're worried about late blooming and you were a late bloomer, then, hey, it's it's worth mentioning to that healthcare provider that that was your case. And I should add one other detail about late blooming that's really important that I should have mentioned with the females, which is when you get your period, it's a funny thing. It, we don't consider periods part of the onset of puberty, right? We consider them kind of a midpoint. However, if a mom got her period at 16 or later, no matter when her body started to develop, if she got her period at 16 or later, she qualifies as a late bloomer. So the way you would go to your doctor and talk about it in the family history sense is you might say, little Johnny doesn't look like he's developing. All of his friends look so much older and more developed than he is. And either I never had any body changes until I was X years old, you name your years, or I didn't get my period until I was 16 and a half. Or if you're the dad, I didn't go into puberty so far as I know until I was X years old. Those are the types of pieces of information that are helpful to your healthcare provider. Hey, it's Cara. We all know puberty isn't always easy. One of the trickiest pieces of the puberty puzzle is boobs. When will I get them? Why are they so tender? And why does every bra out there seem to pull, push, pad, itch, scratch, or be so flimsy it doesn't do a thing? That's where Umla comes in. It's a company that makes puberty comfortable, a company I founded with my friend Julie. When our own daughters began the puberty journey, we couldn't find a decent starter bra anywhere. So we made one. It fits perfectly whether boobs are just starting to bud or they've been growing for a few years. We call it the Umbra. And it's game-changing. The Umbra is made from buttery cotton that feels like second skin, ridiculously soft, and so comfortable you'll forget you're wearing anything at all. Umbra's one-of-a-kind support comes from its patented layered design that creates gentle compression without any tight binding, which also means it doesn't need any bulky, awkward pads because it's built to seamlessly hide nipples and protect against those dreaded ouch moments throughout the day. Our daughters and their friends are done with puberty, but they still love and wear their umbras. It's why we say that the umbra may be your first bra, but it will definitely be your favorite bra. Come say hi, look around, and find your Umbra, plus lots of other puberty info at myoomla.com. That's M Y O O M L A. 
Zoom.com. After we've been Zooming all day, we both hit the same wall. We forgot about dealing with dinner. But given what we do for a living, we know the importance of feeding ourselves and our families well. And we want it to be yummy. So we're psyched to have found Factor. Factor's chef-created, ready-to-eat meals show up at our front doors. With over 35 different options a week to choose from, Cara goes vegan and veggie while I opt for a whole variety since I have so many kids. Two-minute prep gets us restaurant-quality full meals, snacks, and smoothies. And Factor is less expensive than takeout. And because flexibility is key, you can choose anywhere from six to 18 meals per week, and you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Factor meals require no prepping, no cooking, and no cleanup. Our kids are thrilled by the lack of dishes. So get started today and have a week of meals ready to go, taking the dinner prep pressure off. Head to factormeals.com slash puberty50. Use the code puberty50 to get 50% off. That's code puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50. We know it's really tough when a kid's skin is breaking out for the first time or the hundredth time. But now there's an effective product that can help. It's called Phyla, and it's clinically proven to fix acne by targeting the bad bacteria on the skin without eliminating all the good bacteria. This rebalances the skin's microbiome, treating existing breakouts and preventing new ones. Phyla's active ingredient is a probiotic isolated from the skin of healthy, acne-free individuals. This means Phyla can stop acne before it starts by eliminating bacteria in the pores without irritating or drying skin. And Phyla is safe for kids of all ages. Dermatologists recommend this easy three-step system. Just cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. My own kids actually use this product. They love it because it works so well. Get 25% off your first order of Phyla with the code PUBERTY. Go to phylabiotics.com and type in the code PUBERTY at checkout. Link is in the show notes to get started. Hey, this is Alexis Haynes. Join me every Monday for a new episode of my podcast, Recovering From Reality. Whether you're on the road to recovery, seeking self-care techniques for surviving the capitalist machine, or just need a moment to remember that you're not alone in your loneliness. I'm here to deliver intimate conversations and expert insights to empower you on the road towards authentic wellness. So are you ready to recover from reality? If people have used sperm donors to have their children, is that information available to the recipient of the sperm donor? You know, egg donor, sperm donor, it all depends upon what the bank asks for in terms of history. And I think some sperm and egg banks are better than others. Likewise, you know, kids who are adopted, often the family medical history is um, largely unknown. And these, by the way, the lack of knowledge about family history is an important piece of history, Mm -hmm. right? I have two brothers. I have three brothers total. I have two who were adopted at birth. And 
they talk all the time about the frustration of not having a family history to share with a healthcare provider. That is a really important piece of their history that they don't have the history. And is there any way with now with like genetic coding and all of that to sort of back into that, some of that information or are we not there yet? Not that I know of. Okay. So the next clarification I just wanted to get was you're using the term genetic female and genetic male. And I sometimes use biological female and biological male, but I'm not always comfortable or sure that's the right way to refer to it. And I'm curious if you could just talk about why that choice and what's good about using that language and maybe what falls short in using that language. You know, I thank you for asking that and talking about it because I've done a lot of reading on the subject and I don't think either term is the right term, but I can't find the right term. And we do live at a time where we're trying to adjust our language in order to be more thoughtful about how we're describing groups of people. And so I tend to use the word genetic because it just leans into the fact that we're looking at genes and what the genes are encoding for, the proteins the genes are encoding for. And then we're looking at X chromosomes and Y chromosomes. Chromosomes carry genes on them, 23 pairs of chromosomes for each of us. And one of those is either XX or XY. And some people have different combinations with an extra X or an extra Y, or they're missing one. So there are lots, there's lots of genetic variation there. But that's why I use the word genetic, because when we talk about puberty, we're talking about a process that if you're not giving any hormones from the outside, if you're just depending upon what the body is doing on its own, then what the body is doing on its own is largely, not entirely, but largely determined by what genes are in that body. But it's, you're right. None of these phrases is exactly the right terminology in the world we live in right now, making the conversation muddier. Yeah. I mean, I think we just have to do our best and keep evolving as things evolve. Um, but we do want to hear people's suggestions. I've gotten suggestions over Instagram and over email about terms to use Bring and it. kind of, yes. well, none of them so far feel any better than another, but we're very open to trying to get it right. So and maybe they're, maybe they can ask their kids. I, I feel like Gen Z in particular is very, they're native to this type of thinking yeah, in a way that allows them to create language that's better. So if adults out there want to ask their kids what the better terminology is and share it with us, we'd love to hear it. So we understand now the age range and we understand kind of what's considered normal or late. What is going on physiologically that is causing people to go into puberty or to, to not yet go into puberty? What's happening or not happening? And what are doctors looking for when they run those blood tests? And besides the physical exams, what are they looking for in the, in the blood work? So puberty begins in the brain. Okay. And this is the most important concept to wrap your head around is that there's a gland in the brain that sends a hormone to another gland in the brain. Okay. It's brain, brain communication. The hormone then tells, so it's called GNRH and GNRH tells 
the pituitary gland, which is a gland that's directly kind of between the midpoint between your eyebrows. It's like where your third eye would be, but a little bit deeper. And the pituitary gland is the home of a lot of control hormones. Um, Pituitary gland controls your growth hormone release. The pituitary gland also controls the release of LH and FSH. And LH and FSH, luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone, are the two hormones that travel to your ovaries or testicles, whichever your body has, and tells the ovaries to make estrogen and progesterone and tells the testicles to make testosterone. So there's this feedback loop that happens between the brain and either the ovaries or the testicles, but the kickoff of the feedback loop is deeper inside the brain. And this is you know, very, very, very important um, in terms of understanding then why some people would go into puberty a little bit earlier and other people wouldn't, right? But do we know what causes that first gland to kick it off? Yeah. And the, and the gland, by the way, is called the hypothalamus. Um, that's the home of GnRH. And yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people who study this and look at this and, and some of it is almost on a time clock, like anything else in development. We have these these triggers that just over time, I'm sure it's a threshold of things that your body has produced or reached and I'm not sophisticated enough to be able to describe it. So I think of it in very simplistic terms, like a time clock, but what turns on the GnRH production in the hypothalamus early or late is there's clearly a huge genetic component, right? Because I've just told you, if your biologic mom or biologic dad is a late bloomer, your chance of being a late bloomer is pretty darn high. Um, and forgive me because I don't have Decoding Boys in front of me, but there is a section in Decoding Boys that talks about exactly what the statistical likelihoods are. And it kind of goes through the numbers. If you have one parent, if you have two parents who are late, were late bloomers. Do you want me um, to pull it off my bookshelf? No, no, I don't. Okay. Um, Everyone should go buy Decoding Boys and then they can look at Oh my God, chapter. that's not what I meant by that reference, but... <laughs> I can that's say it because it's such an amazing book and I love it. So um, that's very nice, Vanessa. But there are clearly environmental triggers and Louise described these when she right. was on our show that tell, and we, I presume, and I think this was implied in what Louise was saying, they're telling the hypothalamus to release GnRH. They're not going right to the pituitary to, you know, and directly act on the pituitary. They're going, they're going to domino number one, not domino number two. And that one of the main ones was she drew a distinction between low level stress and survival stress, right? Which was fascinating. Which was fascinating because what I had remembered from the new puberty was that low level stress, low grade stress can cause the fight or flight. And she talks specifically about females, the fight or flight instinct to kick in. And it's like, oh, I'm I'm under stress. I may be at risk here. I better start mating. I better start procreating before I'm no longer here. And so the body starts the the menstruation, right. you know, and, the and actually process. what the body does and what she was she was describing in vague terms, but 
I'll try to be slightly less vague than she was because she was covering so much material is the adrenal glands that sit on top of the kidneys. Those are the glands that have the hormones that respond to stress, cortisol Mm -hmm. and the other hormones that respond to stress. It is when the adrenal glands are turned up a notch that they produce more of these hormones, stress hormones that then circulate all around the body that trigger the hypothalamus to tell the pituitary, to tell the ovaries or the testicles to do their thing. That's the cascade. It starts at the adrenals. And not turned up to an 11 out of 10, but maybe turned up to like a, you know, a five or six over a sustained period of time. Because what she said is when you go to 11, the body actually has the opposite response. And shuts down. it shuts down. Yeah, because this body's not going to be able to procreate. Right. Is is they're malnourished, they're under extreme stress. Um, yeah, I found that I found that really interesting. So do we know besides that like survival turned up to eleven and besides genetics, which we've talked about, do we know if there are other environmental factors or genetic factors that would cause us to not begin puberty? Yeah, I mean, we do. Um So one of the fascinating ones that she mentioned, and I write about it a little bit, is weight. So it's hard to wrap your brain around, but carrying a little excess weight in a genetically male body can tip you into puberty early and carrying a lot of excess weight can delay you. And that feels very hard to understand. But what Louise talked about, and I will reiterate here, is that Fat tissue, it's called adipose tissue. There are cells, adipose cells, they they are functional cells and they work really hard in the body. And one of the things they can do is they can convert hormones from one form into another. And they essentially, this is a very simplistic explanation, but they essentially create a higher level of estrogen in the body because the way they convert hormones estrogenizes hormones. It converts hormones into sort of looking more like estrogen or actually turning some into active estrogen. So if you carry a little bit of extra body weight, the seesaw between testosterone and estrogen is shifted in one direction for young males, young genetic males. And if you carry a lot, it's shifted so much in that direction that actually the estrogen outweighs the testosterone. The estrogen makes the testosterone a little bit ineffective initially and can delay the onset of puberty. I mean, please, if you're a pediatric endocrinologist, like you can stop cringing now because that's the end of that description. And Louise described it, I think, much more articulately on her episode. And you should go listen to that. But it's important to realize that body weight is a driver of- And what about in females? So low body fat, again, partly because of the stress piece and possibly because of the no peripheral conversion to more estrogen. Although I don't think it's a lot the latter. I think it's mostly the the former, the stress, the body feels stressed, has very low body fat. Those bodies develop later. Although I will tell you, I know plenty of athletes who have a high lean muscle mass to body fat ratio, meaning their body fat is very low, their lean muscle mass is very high, and they develop on time. They just, the biologic females don't have their periods on time, but it doesn't change 
the breast development piece, the curves, all that. So it's different in different bodies. But there are, and then of course, you know, you're going to ask me next, food and, you know, pesticides and phthalates and BPA and all of these chemicals that we know are probably bad actors in our body. Do those things contribute to late puberty the way they contribute to early puberty? And I think if Louise was here right now, what she would say is maybe we need to study it a whole lot more. We know there are clear connections between those things, antibiotics in food, which she talked about a lot. Um, there are clear connections between those environmental exposures and early puberty. Certainly, as we study this more and more and more, I suspect we will learn about other environmental pollutants being connected with later puberty. So imagine that I'm living in a home and I have a 14-year-old boy who... Just imagine. Imagine. I actually don't have a 14-year-old boy. I have everything but a 14-year-old boy who is showing no signs of puberty. And he's a foot shorter and 40 pounds lighter than his friends and his voice hasn't changed. And he looks like he looks like a 10 or 11 year old. Yes. And not only am I seeing it affect him socially. I'm seeing it affect him in athletics. I'm seeing an impact on his self-esteem. So when do I worry and what do I do? Who do I go to? Okay. This is a really important question because you said 14-year-old, but I'm going to answer it for a 14-year-old and then for a 13-year-old and then for a 12-year-old. Okay. Okay. And here's why. Because you asked, I see it affect him socially and emotionally. And my answer is a kid who is impacted by their late blooming status socially and emotionally is a kid who needs to see a healthcare provider. And I actually don't need them to reach 14. I think that's a big ask. Hey, get over it. You're 12 and everyone Mm -hmm. else looks, you know, five years older than you. It's okay. Give it two more years. If you've got a 12 year old who is deeply impacted by the fact that everyone else around him And I'm going to say him here because the more common scenario, 12 is for a genetic boy, genetic male to be the one who's late. But, you know, don't blow it off at 12 or 13. In fact, and I do write about this in Decoding Boys, technically the endocrinologists are told don't treat late puberty. And we can talk about treating late puberty, but don't treat late puberty until a child is at least 14 and then has had the full assessment. And what I'm going to say is I've met some rogue endocrinologists who are meeting boys who are younger than 14, who are deeply impacted by the way their body looks and feels. And those endocrinologists are bending the rules a little bit in order to deal with the social and emotional impact of late puberty. And I think that's totally appropriate. So if you have a 12 or 13 year old who is decimated by the fact that nothing is going on, go into your doctor. And the reason why This is an incredible thing because if they do a physical exam, take out the orchidometer and go, oh, no, no, you're in puberty. Nothing around you looks like you're in puberty. You don't have broad shoulders. You're not, you know, nothing is shifting and changing. Your voice hasn't changed. There's no growth spurt anywhere in sight. You you know, you, you don't have, and we know this isn't 
technically puberty, but you don't have the mustache, you don't have have thick brows, you don't have body odor, right? All those things are adrenal androgens as we've talked about in the past. But if someone can look at a 12, 13, 14 year old and say, I have evidence, I can show you your testicles are growing, your testicles are going to make testosterone, that testosterone is going to kick in and here's your timeline. Look at what you have just done for that kid. Right. It's game changing. So don't what use else? 14 as your cutoff. Okay. So I'm walking back my question yeah. just a little bit. So it's, let's say I've got a 12 and a half year old. Mm-hmm. He's finishing seventh grade. And I, we, so we go through that. We go to see our pediatrician. And the our pediatrician, pediatrician says, not a next nothing. Right. Pediatrician says, yeah. not a next nothing. What are the next steps? What's going to happen okay. from there? Okay. So for the 12 and a half year old, some pediatricians will say, we do have to wait because 14 is really the cutoff. And I'm not going to make you wait all the way till 14, but I'm going to have you come back in six months and we're going to see where things are there. And that's a very appropriate piece of advice. And it's a hard piece of advice to follow. But I think even just having the conversation and honoring the fact that it's hard to be a late bloomer is enough for a lot of kids. They feel that they've been taken seriously and they've been seen. Okay. And by the way, we're saying this in the context of males, but let's include females in this conversation. Everyone, doesn't matter what your gender is. If relative to your peer group, you feel very late having a conversation with a healthcare provider to contextualize how you feel and to understand the science around it is really, really important. Okay. And what sort of subjectively, not in terms okay. of the science, the age, but for girls, yeah. what would quote feel very late in a kind of a social context? Well, it's it's interesting because puberty begins on average, as you know, between eight and nine for most girls, but a lot of girls won't have a breast bud in sight until, you know, 11, 11 and a half. That, all of that is normal. So just having a conversation about how broad the spectrum of normal is can really help And you can go, oh, oh, well, then it doesn't mean they'll never grow, right? So, but again, I would say by the time a genetic female is 12, if there's absolutely nothing going on, to me, you go see a provider, okay? Now, some males will hit 14 before they go see a provider. It doesn't bother them, right? There's a group of kids who are totally okay with, how their body is shifting and changing in the timeline. They've been told everyone in their family was a late bloomer. They've compensated by sort of building certain skill sets. There are actually a lot of long-term perks to being a late bloomer in certain ways because you're not so dependent upon the physical and you learn to be a scrappier athlete. You work harder often. Some have you know, Roger talked, your husband, Roger talked a lot about personality development as a result of being a late bloomer. So there's a lot of that, but you're asking me what happens once you're at the healthcare provider's office. Okay. So path A is we wait and we recheck in six more months. Path B and path B, you go down. Certainly if you're over 14 for a genetic male and over 12 for a genetic female is we draw some blood which is not necessarily the most popular answer for some kids. Although I would argue that if they're frustrated enough to ask to go see a doctor, they are very happy to have someone stick a needle in their arm and draw some blood. And can I just ask a sort of parenting judgment question? What if our kids aren't coming to ask? Like, Mm -hmm. what if they're not complaining or voicing worries? Like, 
do we initiate it or do we just sort of say, okay, well, it doesn't seem to be bothering them. Let's like, let's wait and see. It's a great question because there are going to be households like that. And that is a call from the parent to the doctor. Hey, I'm not seeing anything. And should I be concerned? And most of the time the doctor will say, let's make up a reason for a checkup and come in and just let me just examine and see what's going on. You don't have to be bringing this up at home. I can just get eyes on the situation and I can help reassure you. I do want to reassure parents that whatever you're feeling about your kid's puberty, if you're feeling worried or anxious, uncertain, whatever, it's all totally normal. Don't judge your own worries. Don't dump your worries on your kid. Find an adult to talk to, you know, the pediatrician, a friend, a therapist, a partner, whatever. But like, it's okay if you're feeling worried about it. It's really common. It brings up, as we've talked about before, it brings up so much stuff for adults when they think about their own puberty, but just don't dump it on your kid. Right. One of the things that brings worry is for males, genetic males, there's this very typical pattern of growth that happens with late blooming. So go with me here. On average, most kids grow between an inch and a half and two inches every single year from the end of the toddler years all the way until their growth spurt. And then in their growth spurt, genetic females grow about three inches a year, genetic males, three to four inches a year. Genetic females grow about three inches a year. Genetic males grow about three to four inches a year. The female growth spurt lasts two to three years. The male growth spurt lasts three to four years. You do that math, that's where you get the height differential, right? But for late blooming boys in particular, what we see is that the growth rate slows down, okay, pre-puberty. So instead of getting an inch and a half to two inches a year, those kids are getting half an inch a year. So now, seventh grade, even the kids who aren't in a growth spurt, by the way, male growth spurts tend to happen later as everyone knows. So yeah, there's a super tall kid always in seventh grade, a couple of them, but it's sometime between 14 and 16 that the average growth spurt really begins or is is in full force. But in seventh grade, if you've got a 12-year-old boy who's on path to be a late bloomer, you may see, oh my gosh, his growth is stalling out. And instead of going from 4.9 to 4.11, he's gone from 4.9 to 4.9 and a half this year. And then the next year, instead of going from 4.11 to 5.1 before he gets into his growth spurt, He's gone from four, nine and a half to four, 10. And now you see a more dramatic height difference between your late blooming boy who looks younger than all the other boys and is physically shorter. That, Vanessa, is a huge source of stress and anxiety for a lot of parents and kids. And it's completely understandable. And what's really remarkable about it is you would expect me to say, but they're going to make it up in puberty because they're going to have this growth spurt. What I'm going to tell you is, yes, they have the growth spurt. There's that They have that. But because they've lost a couple of inches along the way of growth pre-puberty, they actually typically late blooming males end up on the shorter side when they're adults. So 
the stress and anxiety around it is not something that your pediatrician can or should just say, oh, he'll make it up later. It does translate into adult height, which has all these layers to it in the world that we live in. And so, you know, sorry to interrupt your question. No, that but it also anxiety, begs, a, I mean, it begs the, the kind of sociological question or issue, which is like, why are we all so caught up in men being tall? Like this equivalency of kind of this masculinity and height is so crappy for so many boys and so many men. And it's like, I just wish we could let go of it. It's so hard to watch these people wait and worry. And then, you know, there's this sense of inadequacy because they're not six feet, God forbid. Well, and and I will tell you, I'm flashing back right now to this piece of the conversation with your brother, where we were talking about the experience of being a late bloomer and being perceived as short. And he was talking about how he's not short as an adult, but he perceives himself as short and other people read him as, it's like he carries the persona of someone. And I have asked him over the years, if he thinks it's because he went through that period of not growing when everyone else was growing, not even not being in your growth spurt, just not growing. And he, you know, the first time I asked him, he was like, oh my God, I had never thought of it that way. And, you know, that's a huge driver. So the height piece is very important. And it's what brings a lot of people to the pediatrician yeah. way before 14. So right? let's flip it. We've talked about genetic males, genetic females, and you have experience with this personally. Although I would imagine your parents did not bring you to a pediatric endocrinologist at 12, but I could be wrong. So, you know, no sign of anything, no menstruation by, you know, 13. What are we looking at with girls? So I, you know, I'll tell you, I, I was on the latest end of normal, but never tipped into late bloomer. I was just like, just, you know, I, I don't know. It's like walking, you know, you're supposed to walk at a year. I walked at 15 months and you know, just late enough to not have to go see someone. Um, and that's sort of how my puberty was too. So I've told you before, my brothers used to walk around the house and say, you're so flat. The walls are jealous. And they did that for so many years because they could, because it You'd really, think they would get bored with that eventually. It's never born. Like, doesn't it's that joke born. get old? No, because I guess not. is so easy to push. Yes. And yes. so, you know, for me, I didn't see any physical shift at all, any body changes until just about 12, which again, it, it was a different time, right? So today's puberty happens so much earlier that these ages are not really relevant. But then I, I got my period for the first time on my 14th birthday. That is not late, okay? It was later than all my friends, but it is not late. So a late first period is 16 and we had Hina Talib on the podcast who talked about 15 and a half as a good cutoff. If your daughter has not gotten a period by 15 and a half, time to start asking your pediatrician about it. I think that's because it gives us a six month cushion to then hit the 16 mark and start sort of looking um, again at, at blood draws and, and seeing what the hormones are doing and maybe doing an ultrasound and looking at the, the ovaries. But a late blooming female, because girls enter puberty earlier, there's a longer window of normal, right? For entry and for getting through it. Also because it's so damn visible. 
Right. You don't have to look at testicles with an orchidometer to tell yeah, whether a girl it. is starting to develop. Yeah, exactly. So besides having blood drawn and a, with a biological female, a, you know, some sort of scan on the ovaries, what about a x-rays for the growth plates to determine like where they are in their growth process? Right. So a lot of parents are very fixated on height for all the reasons that you outlined a couple of minutes ago. And the answer is that if your child is falling off their height curve, what that means is those curves that have been plotted ever since they were a baby looking at their height and weight trajectory and seeing how the height and weight relate to one another. If the height of your child is not following the normal S shape of the curve, sort of its long horizontal S shape of the curve, then it's called falling off the growth curve. And then your doctor is likely to, among other things, send you for an x-ray of the hand that looks at the maturation of the bones in the hand. There are lots of bones in the hand and every bone has a growth plate. And you can see based upon which growth plates are open and which growth plates are closed. You can kind of bone age is what we call it. You can bone age a person. So there's your chronologic age. That's your age in months and years. And then there's your bone age, which is the age that your bones look on an x-ray. And they've been normed so that a typical 10-year-old should have bones that look this way. And a typical 11-year-old should have bones that look this way. And and they can bone age down to a, a window of a few months, which is kind of incredible. So if you have a late bloomer, okay, if you have a 14-year-old genetic male living in your home, who's got nothing, nothing going on, you go into the doctor, there's a nice conversation about what the heck is going on? How does it feel? How's school? How are friendships? All that. That's very important. There's a physical exam, particularly looking at testicular size and penile size. So get your son okay with that. Let them know, you know, this is not something that's a problem and it's not inappropriate for a healthcare provider to be looking at that. And they will be looking at that. There are labs that are going to be drawn looking at hormone levels and likely there's a bone age that's going to be done. And when you do the bone age, if a 14-year-old has a bone age of 14, what that means is that the bones are likely to stop growing at, you know, whatever the, I think it's 17 maybe on the average is about when most height plateaus. Although again, we all know people who grew two or three inches in college. And so there's a range, but um, the bones are going to grow until this average age. And so in other words, if your puberty is late and your bone age is normal, your height is not going to catch up. So if you're short at 14 and showing no signs of puberty, the bone age would suggest, at 14 would suggest you're not going to catch up your height. Even if you go into a growth spurt, your bones are... Whereas if you're 14 chronologically and your bone age is 11, what that suggests is, oh, your bones think you're 11. They're going to grow for three more years compared to your chronologic age you are more, much more likely to make up the height difference. Does that make sense? Yeah. Did I say that in an articulate way? Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's helpful. I want to finish the episode Wait, by... Before yeah. we do that, can we just make a clear plea to parents? Don't go to your doctor and ask for bone age. I have so many people call me and ask, should I get my child a bone age? I think... It's a fair question to ask when you're consulting with your doctor, should we do this? But to go in with the request to do it, you're asking to collect a piece of data that 
in and of itself might be helpful, but might not. It, you know, in a vacuum, a bone age doesn't mean a lot. You need a bone age in context with all these other things that we talked about. So I just hesitate for parents who are deeply involved in worry here. I, I don't want you to rush and, and do think that you have to medicalize your kid and go and, and certainly don't do it without your doctor's consent. Don't go to it. Right. Or don't do it in a vacuum. I mean, contextualize Correct. it with, with other stuff. I want to just play out for a second what these conversations can sound like with our kids. If these are the worries that are going on in our house, you talked about preparing your kid ahead of a doctor's appointment that they may do some examination, you know, potentially of breasts or testicles or penis. And that's a conversation we should be having with our kids. What starting probably by age four about who can touch them and who can look at parts of their body and that you can be in the room and that it's totally appropriate. And here's why they're doing it. So we know that part of it, the emotional side of having this conversation with your kid, right? We talked about the kid who's not bringing it up and and what do we do then? The kid who's struggling or who we believe is struggling, but maybe isn't articulating it. That conversation, as you said earlier, Cara, naming that for your kid, acknowledging that for your kid, being empathic for your kid, right? Like maybe you are a short adult who hit puberty early or late, and you're kind of like, get over it. It's no big deal. Or you were a quote unquote normal kid in puberty and you have no idea what it feels like for your kid. So to bring some empathy and understanding and grace to this conversation with your kid, it definitely doesn't sound like, oh, get over it. Like it's not a big deal. Car, what does it sound like? Well, I think it's a perfect place to end the conversation which is how do you start the conversation with your kid? We all mess up our conversations with our kids all the time, especially when we carry our own baggage into them. However, when it comes to puberty and development and how you look and how you feel about how you look, it's hard as a parent not to do that. And so I don't think there's a right answer for exactly how the conversation goes. I think there's some wrong answers, just like you described. But I think the best way that I've heard it done, not the only, but probably the best, is something along these lines. Hey, I've noticed that your friends, a couple of them have a lot of acne popping up. Are you worried about getting acne? You want to talk about any of that? Or, hey, I drove carpool the other day and my car still smells ridiculous. It is crazy how the body is changing. Let's laugh about it for a second. And then let's let's talk about it. What do you do when you're in someone else's car to be, you know, these tiptoes into the conversation about how other people's bodies are changing allows your child to say, but mine's not. And I find it's a pretty elegant way to start a series of conversations. If you're really worried, you're allowed to say to your kid, I see a big difference between the way you're developing and the way your friends are developing. And I called Dr. So-and-so and I asked if we could go in because I have questions about it. 
And if I have questions about it, I wonder if you have questions about it. And you may have a kid who says, I don't have any questions at all, in which case you can say, cool, mind coming with me while I ask mine. Right. You might have a kid who says, I have a lot of questions and I actually have questions I want to ask without you there. And the answer to that is great. I'm going to ask some of my questions and then I'm going to step out of the room and you ask anything you want. I like how you frame that rather than saying I have worries or I'm worried or I'm concerned. You said I have questions, right? So that doesn't, it's like a kind of a judgment free as opposed to placing a fear or negative judgment on the situation. So let's finish with our practical puberty takeaway. Besides, you know, you know what you're going to get me for Hanukkah. Um, hint, hint. And in terms of what I learned from this is the importance of the context of all of the different elements that go into determining whether a kid is a late bloomer, not just looking at breasts or testicle size or growth plate, but looking at the whole picture and how important that is for healthcare providers, but also for, for the families themselves. What's yours, Car? It's all relative. There are absolute definitions of late blooming and there are experiential definitions of late blooming. Both are legit. So in either case, if you are worried about what's going on with your kid physically or emotionally or socially, call your primary healthcare provider and start the conversation. Yeah, because our kids' emotional health is just as important as their physical health. And if we see it impacting them emotionally, it's a totally valid reason to get on the phone, even if we're not even sure if it's the right moment or not. Because if we worry about them and they don't seem to be thriving emotionally or physically, it's totally valid to raise that with our healthcare providers. That's right. And if if you have a late bloomer, who is developing certain personality traits that are really positive as a result of the late blooming, then that's one wonderfully empowering piece of this. But a lot of people will describe a late blooming child in their home who's developing strategies to manage all of the emotional baggage that goes along with being a late bloomer in not so positive or healthy ways. And if we don't address the elephant in the room, and get just get to the core of it, then we're not helping our kid, right? At the end of the day, that's the goal. And I think we'll need to do a separate episode on the kind of social emotional stuff. And you've got some great stuff in the book and we each have observations and experiences around this issue. And it's really important to talk about, but the science is critical. And let's do an episode on growth hormone, shall we? Yes. But with that, we're going to go. Thanks, Cara. Thanks, Vanessa. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at the puberty podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at the puberty podcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myoomla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye. <laughs>